Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I'll be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Today we're going to talk about um, factions in uh, RPGs, uh, particularly in uh, sandbox RPGs. And uh, I'm going to talk about cantrips. I'm not really, I don't necessarily have an opinion on cantrips right now, so this may be a bit of a throwing out ideas and see what you folks think. So anyway, that's what we got in store. Uh, first up, a um, call-in uh, from... Um, uh, map of uh, Cockatrice Nuggets. And that's what got me thinking about factions. So here we go. Okay, so in this episode, I'm an idiot and I call Rich uh, from Cockatrice Nuggets uh, Matt because I didn't listen to the voice message and went off memory. So this should serve as a cautionary tale to listen to the damn voice messages before you actually start responding to them. So Rich, my apologies for calling you by the wrong name. I fucking hate when people do that for me. So my apologies, Rich. Uh, so um, as far as you, when you're listening forward here, um, when I say Matt, I mean Rich. Hey man, it's Rich from Cockatrice Nuggets. I really dig the idea of having faction turns. Um, you're using uh, some Kevin Crawford stuff, so I don't know if you've looked into his um, space game, I can't remember what it's called, or Red Tide anymore, uh, but he's got some faction turns in there. Um, it's a little too hands-on for what I'm looking for, so I'd love to see what you're working on. Um, eventually, I'd like to get like a set of tables, you know, a war faction, a sneaky faction, maybe kind of related to classes, right? A fighter faction, a thief faction, a magic faction, something. Anyway, a set of tables that I can roll on every faction turn, say a month, and that'll spit out, hey, this is what they're trying to do, and I can interpret that in uh, my campaign. So, love what you're doing, man. Love to hear about it, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, that's a great question, uh, Matt. Um, so the factions, I, the idea for factions that I have in mine, uh, in my campaign, or at least in my, um, what I'm doing in Barrow Maze and what I'm doing in um, the Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers campaign for uh, Tula, Reavers of Tula, um, I'm actually going to be doing something a little different from what uh, Kevin Crawford does in his games. So in his games, you're, you're absolutely right that they, they kind of are like mini-games where it's a an, an adjunct thing that's happening in uh, the campaign, um, and players can interact with it in, like, say, the, the Godbound version, but I don't remember that they can in the Scarlet Heroes version, and I don't remember if they can in the Revised Stars Without Number version. So um, what I'm not... Like, well, I, I want the game to be about the heroes and focused on their PCs and not necessarily be a game of, like, you know, um, a kind of, like you know, kludged together version of, uh, like diplomacy or, or something like that, where they're, they're, you know, movers and chase, like they're having to play a separate character, which just happens to be a, a faction or something like that. Um, what, what I'm interested in is kind of putting it, uh, turning the, the tables a bit. And it's not that they're driving the actions of the factions and they're deciding what the factions are doing necessarily. What they're doing is trying to curry favor with them. So the, um, the model I'm using is probably closer to like the 5e version of uh, factions. That's actually where I first started developing the, the idea for these. Um, the things that you find in the DMG gives you some neat ideas for 5th edition uh, DMG, neat ideas for how to incorporate factions. And to be honest, you know, years and years of playing World of Warcraft has me thinking of that too. And what I'm trying to do is find a way to 
Oh, actually, and there's another source as well, too. Um, the Ultimate Intrigue book for Pathfinder actually has... It's pretty mechanical. It's pretty, like, um, crunchy. But there's some really interesting ideas of how you can have factions be a thing you can, you know, pursue in that. And how you set XP rewards and things like that with, with that. With uh, pursuing that kind of activity rather than traditional, like, you know, dungeon crawling or, you know, following an adventure path or whatever. And I... I I like that in particular. Like, I like the idea that there are clear goals that you could work towards if you hit a certain level of um, renown. Now, what what I don't want it to be is like it is in um, World of Warcraft, where like you know there is a resource that the factions track called you know influence or um, whatever it's called, reputation. I think it's in in WoW, um, and then it, you just know that oh, I need ten thousand renown. I'll divide that by what I get from killing each X, and I'll just kill Y many of X in order to get that number. And then, Bob's your uncle, you get whatever reward you want to get. Instead, what I'm interested in doing is setting it up as um, a little more loosey-goosey as to when they're going to be getting reputation. So what I want to do is, um, I mean, I don't want to make it, you know, a total mystery, but I want to make it clear that, you know, I don't want it to be necessarily just a menu of like, oh, if I, you know, clear X hex for this faction uh, of monsters, then I'll get Y amount of renown. I want to just kind of judge it uh, in the same way that you judge, you know, XP, to be honest, uh, sometimes with just eyeballing it, you know, and giving a kind of rule of thumb, uh, you know, amount. But um, but that's really what I'm going to be doing is what, what my, my intent is, is to have it be another way for the players to interact with the world and for them to interact with the sandbox. Uh, sorry, I got interrupted there. Um, so yeah, so I, what I want it to be is more uh, a way for the players to interact with the sandbox uh, more so uh, than um, necessarily like a second set of characters they're playing. Now, one of the things that comes from uh, Kevin Crawford's uh, faction rules for the various uh, sandbox games that he has that I do like is that it creates kind of a responsive world. Um, but to simulate that, what I'm going to be doing is just stealing some rules from um, John Rogers. I think it's John Rogers who wrote it. Uh, Blades in the Dark. Uh, Blades in the Dark is this um, powered by the apocalypse, very narrative-driven game um, that I've had a lot of fun with. Like, I, I, there's a, a lot of really, really great ideas in the game. Um, it's a shit ton of fun because you're playing a bunch of criminals and, and stuff like that in this uh, kind of like uh, fantasy you know, medieval-type world. Or not medieval, but, like, um, Victorian uh, world. Um, but one of the things it has is a shit ton of factions that, you know, can come into play. Now, it's a narrative game, so it's very, very loosey-goosey in terms of the uh, the rules, the firm rules. It's more on, like, you know, factions uh, um, pursuing their goals or struggling against each other. They really just sort of arbitrarily set them a, a, a tier. And then you... Uh, you roll a number of dice, and then that, you know, uh, their task resolution system, you roll a number of dice, and then the outcome of that tells you how successful they were in their goals. And um, that, I mean, for, for some, that might be too little in terms of uh, the rules, but I'm not interested in running a, like, behind-the-scenes faction game, and the players aren't playing factions in themselves, so I don't really need a lot of stats for them. All I really need is just that little element of... Uh, change that comes from that kind of thing where, you know, you thought the Rooks of Raven were on the ascent in uh, Tuliborg and then, oh my god, they had a, f a setback and then that gives me the opportunity to try and figure out you know, come up with a creative reason for why they did and, and maybe looking at who you know, um, 
who saw some some success in that last pass. What I'll probably do is is uh, yeah, I'm going to be using uh, in addition to those faction rules, I'm actually using the random event tables from the first edition AD&D uh, Oriental Adventures book. Uh, because I, first off, I love that book. It's it's a book that's got a lot of sentimental. Um, attachment for me, I just, you know, I, I read mine to pieces, and I still kick myself for having sold my copy, I just, ah, it's one of the uh, those um, things I, I really wish I hadn't gotten rid of, I, I have a bound copy right now, but I haven't managed to find another physical copy yet, but um, anyway, um, in that book, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, there is not only a set of random encounter tables for, you know, the different um, biomes that you'll be traveling in or adventuring in, uh, they also have uh, rules for yearly, monthly, and daily random events. Now, because it's Oriental Adventures, um, an awful lot of those daily events and monthly events seem to be duels, so I need to find a way to, to change that. Although, Vikings did duel quite a bit over honor, so... And Tuleborg is founded by Vikings, so maybe I don't need to change that. But in any event, what I'm planning on doing is uh, um, I have been using that table to uh, in, to inject some, you know, a feeling of life and that the, you know, life is going on in my Barrow Maze campaign in Helix. And that's been really successful. I mean, I think that the players have really made it, uh, they, they've really felt like the the town itself is, um, you know, it, it has a life of its own. It doesn't revolve around the players the sun doesn't rise and set on them there's things going on in town so the combination of those random event tables from the oriental adventures book as well as that sort of very loosey-goosey kind of you know um faction rules taken from the um blades of the dark game that's kind of how i'm going to be dealing with the responsiveness of the world like the the, the thing that um kevin crawford's more comprehensive rules for factions in those other games achieves because again like for, for me for this game at least it isn't about the players becoming part of the faction and i'm not really interested in in uh, rolling that crap out myself like uh in blades in the dark you can sit down and just roll out and find out what each different faction is doing and like that's fine but you know there's like 30 factions and that's really kind of tedious and boring i'm i'm going to probably to see which factions the players really respond to and make one or a decision of one or two that I really want to have in the campaign. And uh, what I'll do is just sort of track what's happening with those. Uh, and then if the players do get into a circumstance where they can encounter another one of the factions, then I'll maybe add them in a mix. So that gives me a manageable amount of, um, of factions to be sort of dealing with. And then obviously if the players, I think what I'll be doing is if the players do something to say confound or advance one of the factions, I'll just bump them up a tier. You know, I'll, I'll set the, uh, the the relative power level for them will be higher, and then I'll just try and fit um, a narrative explanation for why that happened or how that happened. You know, um, and then let the characters, yeah, kind of respond to that. So I guess I'm inter interjecting a bit of um, story game mechanics into my faction rules, but the the actual and to be honest, some video game mechanics. But the thing I like about the um, the set faction benefits is uh, I usually give two options. So I'll give like a item option and a uh, follower option. And then in addition, as the players go up in the factions, they gain contacts that they can call on. And those rules are actually adapted from 5th edition Shadowrun. Um, and uh, they've been pretty, you know, the, the campaigns where I've used them so far, it really does make the, can the factions a much, it really emphasizes the importance of those particular uh, NPCs 
uh, in the campaign, and um, it gives players something to work towards because, you know, and, and an interesting character decision point as well where, you know, they reach that first tier and they're like, oh, shit, do I want, you know, a ring or do I want a ranger, you know, uh, first level ranger uh, henchman? Uh, what, what, what is going to be more beneficial for me, for the party? You know, um, if we don't have any clerics, like in our um, uh, Reavers of Tula campaign, nobody's playing anybody who can cast any healing spells. So uh, that's uh, that's potentially going to be, uh, you know, a challenge for the players down the road. And what the factions give them is an option to pursue those resources. They could obviously hire a henchman, but I'm using sort of an OSR approach to that where they got to track one down and it's going to be random as to, you know, what kind of henchmen are available. So this gives them a way of getting something out of the game, but also forcing them to sort of interact with the fiction, you know, so, and, and, uh, make that more real. So anyway, um, I'm not sure. I mean, I hope that that uh, gives a clear answer as to sort of what my plans are for for the factions. What I'll do as well as find what I need to do in 2019 is start actually making use of my blog again because um, there's that's probably the easiest way to share some of the faction rules and some of the other uh, materials that I'm preparing for this campaign, uh, including like the map and and uh, whatnot, the map of Tuliborg, the map of Tula. Um, so probably I'll have to do that, I guess. Maybe i got to look at that this weekend. But anyway, that's my faction stuff. Now, let's talk about cantrips. All right, I've had a chance to listen to my recording on factions, and I realized that uh, either I had far too much coffee or not nearly enough, and uh, the what I gave you, uh, A, didn't answer Rich's question and, and set out what specifically I'm doing with my faction rules, and, uh, and B, it, it's a bit of a, you know, uh, kind of a manic word salad. So let me try to give a clear answer for that. So for every faction in my campaign, and this is a change from my Barrel Maze campaign, what I'm going to be doing is setting specific uh, player-facing uh, elements to the uh, each of the factions and then DM-facing elements for the factions. The player-facing elements will be a clear kind of indication of what the different... Um, you know, what, what, what sort of uh, influence the, the organization has, um, what specific rewards the players can gain as they gain reputation. And those will be things like I, I mentioned uh, in, the, in the previous section of this uh, podcast where, you know, there'll be like magic items or money or uh, companions of some kind. Some of them will be animals, depending on the, the nature of the uh, faction. They might be demons, they might be you know, um, paladins or rangers or whatever. Like they're, and they're keyed to whatever tier of uh, reputation that the characters have reached, however much influence they've carried with that. And as they go up in the tiers as well, they're going to gain more and more contacts, more and more influence within the organization. And um, the reason I'm doing that is because I want that to sort of drive, and this may be obvious, so <laughs> forgive me if I'm stating the obvious, but it's going to be something to drive sort of the campaign. If, if a character... Uh, or rather a player and by virtue of their character becomes really interested in a specific faction, that can be what the campaign's about, you know, that they can be trying to curry favor and, and influence them. And then by virtue of pursuing that faction's interest, they will then make enemies of the uh, adversary factions and they will make uh, maybe some friends in some of the allied factions or potentially those friends who become uh, enemies if the faction grows too powerful and encroaches on their uh, the territory of their allies. So... Um, so yeah, so I mean, like I'm, I'm starting them off in a specific starting point, but the, what the players will be looking at is what the benefits they can gain are from each of those factions. Now on the DM side, I will be setting a relative level, like a, um, sort of a comparative 
power level of each of the different factions and that's just a you know a sort of abstract um determination of how one second i'm just gonna close the office door i i know amy good girl someone is saying uh, is has the gall to walk past my place so my dog is setting them right um the what it'll set is uh, the relative power level compared to other um, factions within Tule Borg, the, the city that's the, the base of my uh, campaign, and then the broader sort of Tula uh, area as well. There will be certain other factions that will unlock, you know, as the players explore more of the map and encounter more of the different things that are out there, they will be given the opportunity to interact with those factions, become allies of them and whatever. Um, so that's what, one of the things that we'll be tracking is the power level. Uh, and that will fluctuate as, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned in the um, earlier that Blades in the Dark sets s- specific tiers. And what I'm thinking is that rather than rolling like dice pools or things like that, I'm just going to take advantage of the existing non-standard action rules in the... Um, uh, in Sonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. And when the faction try something in a given month i will just make a you know determine depending on what they're trying to do i'll gauge that based on how difficult it is and then that the dice roll will determine whether they succeed or fail and the um each of the different factions is also going on the dm side is going to have uh, allies and enemies which may be obvious or not uh they're going to have goals but the goals i'm going to try and set as fairly broad and pretty nebulous because i want them more to be um i want them to be something that the players can kind of latch on to, you know, like if uh, it'll be broad like riches or like influence over a specific uh, faction or something like that. Um, so there's going to be that. And um, I might even include something that's methods to give a sense of, you know, what they actually do, like how, how they, they achieve their goals. You know, like in my campaign, the uh, Rooks of Raven are these fanatics who are dedicated to this god of thievery and and whatnot. And uh, though they may use trickery or blackmail or spying or, you know, espionage or um, uh, extortion as a way of trying to, or just trickery in general, I guess, as a way of, of achieving their goals. Whereas something like the uh, Mist Hunters, which is a group of, um, uh, what do you call it, of uh, Eskimo hunters from, from the region, uh, it may just be to, their their way of protecting things may just be to keep to themselves, you know, disengage, keep things secret, um, because, uh, and then prevent people from accessing things or, or from uh, learning more about certain areas or keeping them out of their, their region, right? So, um, but that's what's going to be on the DM side. So, and then what I'm foreseeing is that every month I'm going to roll uh, using those tables from the uh, Oriental Adventures first edition uh, AD&D book. I'm going to roll, you know, yearly, monthly, and uh, daily events. Um, and the daily events is only really going to be as it applies to the players. But the monthly events will sort of uh, dictate what's what's kind of happening in general. I'm going to go through the list and then, you know, I'm going to set up a table kind of like what's in um, Barrow Maze. And then every month I'll, you know, set up what the goal is for each of the organizations, make my roles to see whether they succeed or fail. And then uh, the ones that are important, I will, uh, like, and by important, I mean the ones that we're seeing on screen. I'm going to look and see what, you know, what sense can be made out of, uh, out of the results of those roles. So if, say, you know, the... um, Second Sons, a, a, an alliance of landless sons that come from the mainland in uh, in Hyperborea who have come out. Let's say if they've had a setback, 
but the, um, I don't know, who would have a guild? The guild, uh, a thieves guild from the city-state of Cremarium. They've had a, a success. And if they were adversaries, then maybe there's something that, you know, what what is it that the guild has achieved that would have set them back? You know, because as, uh, there's it's a small pool. Like Tuliborg is not a very big area. The campaign region is not a very big area. Uh, someone's gain is probably going to be someone else's loss. So um, that's what I'm doing to sort of drive the campaign. I like the idea that you had, Rich, about, you know, um, setting a random encounter table of kind of one party getting a benefit and another one. And I might consider trying that out as well. So that it would have a list of, you know, what you know, certain, what certain faction draws to the, to the front. But what I'm going to try first is that one that I, I liked a lot from Blades in the Dark, which is just you behind the scenes, I make these rolls and that sort of informs what's happening between these different factions. And then as the players act, what I might, you know, that what I might say is that like, let's say there is a weak faction uh, that the players are allied with that the um, and they're trying to do something against a powerful faction. And normally what that would mean would be, it would be a pretty difficult task. So I'd, I'd roll a one out of a, a D20, you know, on a D6, it'd be a one or a two that would succeed in that action. However, with the player's actions, maybe that's going to bump that up by one or maybe two. And then the overall goals of the uh, faction may be achieved. And it, what I might say is just by virtue of the player's actions, that's one reputation they gain. And then I'll make the player's role maybe for the faction's success overall. And if the players succeed, not only they succeed in their immediate mission, but they help their faction, you know, develop those uh, whatever or achieve whatever goal they were pursuing. Well, maybe they get another point of, of reputation for that. Um, so that way there's, I mean, maybe that's, it's not a super meaningful way for, they're not necessarily having to learn a separate set of rules and track a second, you know, uh, character but um, but that's the um, that that would give a way for them to you know have the drama of rolling the dice uh, and seeing whether they personally get any extra benefits from that are linked to the tangible actions they took in support of that organization. So that might be interesting. Um, one thing I'll end with maybe is I'll let you know what the uh, the factions are for my uh, Tule Borg um, setting, um, or rather this is really for Tula in general. Um, but I've got, let's see, this is what I sent out to my players and said, here's the ones that you're going to encounter in the first arc of the campaign. Let me know if any of these interest you. And these include the House of Thurmond, which is the Viking clan of the founder and ruler of Tuleborg, Thane Thurmond Foxbeard. Um, there's Rangvald the Trout, a mysterious seneschal to the House of Thurmond, a magician of some kind who some say was the true architect behind Tuleborg and the wider Tulean colony. And he seems to know many of Tule's secrets. Uh, there's the Sorcerer's Guild, a secretive organization of powerful magicians with uh, influence uh, over the city-state of Cremarium. Uh, there's the Necromancers of Ix, a cabal of sinister necromancers who hail from the island of Ix. There's the Frost World, sorry, Frostwood Circle, which is an association of Lingit Druids and their followers who dwell in this uh, primordial forest called the Frostwood near where uh, Tuliborg is. The Rooks of Raven, who are fanatics uh, dedicated to a God of Trickery, Thieves, and Transformation. There's the Borean Rangers, an occult conspiracy who fight a secret war against the primordial enemies of man. There's the Second Sons, who are an alliance of landless no, landless nobles from the city-state of Cromarium who have allied themselves with the House of Thurmond in the hopes of gaining lands of their own. 
There's the Tulian Commerce League, which is a group of wealthy merchants hoping to grow rich from the riches to be found in Thule. And they financed the stone quarry and the iron mines near Jernheim, which is a, uh, um, a town near uh, Tuleborg. There's the Sages Guild of Cromarium, who are scholars and sages who hope to learn all the secrets they can in this new land. There's the Mist Hunters, a community of uh, Eskimo who seem uh, to hail from the Bay of Mists, who know a lot of the secrets of uh, Tule. The Bay of Mists is uh, a region uh, shrouded in, not surprisingly, mists. That's about, uh, I think it's about 50 miles or 60 miles up the coast from where Tuleborg is. There's the Crusade of the Burning Dawn, which is a group of devoted followers of Apollo and Artemis who see Tule as a wild and unholy land in, name, in need of taming. There are the Ranging Prides, which is a loose association of savage creatures that are unnatural hybrids of man and beast that live as nomads in the boreal plains of, or Borean plains of Tule. Uh, there's the Guild, which is the Thieves' Guild in the city-state of Cromarium, which is arguably the most powerful such organization in all of Hyperborea, which now seeks to extend its influence to Thule. There's the Black Lotus Tong, which is a sinister and secretive group of Lemurian merchants, spies, and assassins who are deadly rivals of the Guild. There is Fang's Fleet, which is a band of roving pirates and raiders who prey on the cargo ships and communities of Thule, uh, and they're named for Vidar the Fang, the feared chieftain of those bloody warriors. And finally, there is the Coven, a circle of Thulean witches who seem to have eyes and ears everywhere in the frozen lands of Thule. So um, obviously not all of those are going to play a role in, uh, in my campaign, um, but what I wanted to do is throw out as many interesting ideas for factions that I wanted to see what the players respond to and then see which ones are, you know, if there are ones that are, uh, that I know are, are adversaries of the ones that the players uh, really are attached to, or if there's ones that I really, you know, I think that would be a cool addition, I can, um, I can add that stuff in. So uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to have um, more, you know, my, my feeling uh, it was that too much is better than not enough. So if I have too many of these, I'll just see which ones the players latch onto and really drill down into the ones that they they respond to by giving them those, you know, benefits and, and NPCs and, and whatever. So um, anyway, that's what my plan is, Rich. I really hope that has provided a better and clearer answer for what these things will look like um, and uh, and what my, my goal is with the uh, faction rules. So hope that helps. All right, so this weekend, or not this weekend, this past Monday, I uh, got a chance to play 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons for the first time. And I've run f 5e before, but this is the first time I've actually played it. And um, so I'm playing a first level druid. Uh, we're playing through the Curse of Strahd campaign. And um, for those who are not, I, mean, I imagine everybody is familiar with the biggest you know, RPG in the world, but... Uh, the, for those who may be unfamiliar, um, first level characters in, D in 5e D&D um, get access to, or casters at least, get access to not only their um, like the spells that require them to use up spell slots, they also gain access to cantrips, which they can cast over and over and over again, kind of like minor magical effects. Now, some of those are combat effects, and I'm not really interested in those. I, I got to use one of them in kind of a um, non-combat scene, which was kind of fun and, and thematic. But the thing that r I really came away with, because Cur Curse of Strahd is not really a combat-heavy uh, campaign, where there's a lot of atmospheric stuff, and there's a lot of chance to like interact with the NPCs and stuff like that. And what I found was that even though my druid was only first level, 
Um, she could do so many great and cool little things, like little touches and flourishes that let me add a little bit to the to the narrative that really highlighted her magical abilities. Um, so, like, examples of that are, like, you know... Um, you know, making uh, hearths in a uh, in a home spring to life. You know, uh, the, the fire uh, would go in uh, for them, and uh, or lighting lanterns, or making wind pick up outside, or like clearing mist to see something more clearly. And like those are totally little things, but I loved being able to add those little flourishes to my role playing to give my character, you know, that extra feel of magic. To, to, because that's what my character was about. It, they weren't about hitting or, or, you know, bludgeoning people or whatever or stealing shit or sneaking. She was about magic. And it was fucking awesome having so many opportunities to add those little um, role-playing flourishes. And, um, I mean, part of that is just the, the kind of player I am. Like, I, I, I like being able to role-play up and describe my character that way because I'm really a DM at heart. So, I mean, I guess let's be honest. It's because I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm fairly... Um, descriptive DM, so I, uh, I'm just, you know, falling back into that sort of trope, but it's something I really enjoy when I play the games, uh, so, so that was really cool, and I also enjoyed having access to rituals, so in D&D, um, or D&D 5, there are, uh, certain kinds of spells that can be cast as rituals, you can use, if you need them right away, you can cast your spell, and it uses up one of your slots, but if you got the time, you can take time, which I think is like 10 minutes, and uh, cast it as a ritual. You, you know, draw out your circles and whatever else, and it doesn't use up one of those uh, spell slot resources. Well, that was fucking awesome as well. I really loved that because I didn't need to... I needed to prepare it. Like, if there's a difference in 5th edition D&D between what you prepare and what you cast, and your prepared spells, um, that takes up... Those are limited resources as well. If you're a, a, um, a, not a um, spontaneous caster, like a, a bard or a... Uh, uh, sorcerer, but actually I can't even remember if bards are spontaneous casters in 5e, but anyway, um, the uh, druid does have to prepare them beforehand, you memorize your, or kind of like fix them in your mind, and then from that list of spells you can cast your spell slots. So you do have to, you know, if you want to cast, like say, detect magic, um, you do have to use up one of those resources, but you don't need to necessarily use up one of your uh, spell slots to do that, and that's fucking awesome, because it gives me another way of contributing to the party, and... Um, feeling magical, like getting me, uh, getting my character an opportunity to do the thing that makes them, you know, their their class makes uh, unique, and um, and it was I really, really, really enjoyed it, and I, it really got me thinking about a lot of the OSR games that I'm running, and uh, of the OSR games that I'm running, uh, or that I've uh, purchased, I should say, not necessarily the ones that I'm running, but because I haven't got uh, Castles and Crusades to the table, but Castles and Crusades has cantrips. Uh, they have a whole host, basically they've got the same cantrips that you would find in 3rd edition D&D. So uh, they, they're not damaging, but um, they're all the little utility things like light or detect magic or, I, th I think they are, read magic maybe. Um, and, but most of the other OSR games do not use cantrips. Um, the uh, Astonishing, not Astonishing, um, it's uh, Adventurer Conqueror King in one of their... Uh, supplements, the, uh, like, I can't remember what the thing is called, um, Otarks? I don't know. Anyway, the, they're, they've got, like, a, a monthly or bi-monthly magazine thing that comes out. They have some optional rules for cantrips in that, but the real thing that they're, because that game is really, like, the, the primary focus on that game is 
building a credible and believable economy, um, or one of the primary focuses of that, uh, that characters can adventure through and build their domains and whatnot, their concern that they expressed was, or that Alexander Macris, the guy who wrote uh, Adventure Conqueror King, is that they, um, the, the introduction of certain characters will break the economy. Um, and that's, that's completely fair enough. The other thing I see is that if you introduce uh, a lot of the, the basic cantrips you see in, say, like Pathfinder 2nd Edition or in uh, D&D 5th Edition uh, to the game, you're going to be invalidating some of the spell choices for OSR games. So things like Light. And, like, I, I've been thinking about this quite, quite a bit. And, like, one of the reasons why um, Light is really obviously important is because it's a hell of a lot more reliable than the torch or a lantern or whatnot. It doesn't go out, doesn't get dropped, doesn't require free hand. Like, it's it's a really, really useful and versatile spell. Plus, I think it lasts longer in uh, most OSR games than what torches do. Torches last an hour, whereas um, light, I think, lasts like six turns plus one turn per level or something ridiculous like that. So it's a really useful spell. And if you relegate that to a cantrip that, that has the same duration, it, it invalidates one of the neat ways that uh, casters are really versatile and really useful. It makes those utility spells invalid, and then you're just stuck with, well, what damaging spells can I use, or you know, can I cast sleep today? Um, but what um, the workaround I have come up with for my um, Scarlet Heroes game, like the, the Scarlet Heroes Revised Stars Without Number mashup that I'm using for my Barrow Maze game, is that uh, I'm letting the players use their cantrips to simulate some of those spells, but they have a uh, duration uh, of concentration. So the players can use their cantrips to, like, you know, create light, but they need to be spending their turn concentrating on it. Uh, if they are focused on, con on um, maintaining that spell, then they can't cast any other spells. So I, I, for me, I found that to be a good enough uh, balance. Plus, if their concentration is blown, like say if they take damage or whatever, uh, then again, the, that spell goes out. And that had, has had some hilarious consequences in past. And I think I'd like to do the same thing for uh, my Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game. Uh, so I'm going to be putting together some custom rules for that. And the reason I, I'm doing that is because, uh, well, I mean, first off, you know, there's precedent in the source material because, you know, with Unearthed Arcana, AD&D introduced cantrips. I think that cantrips in AD&D may have been limited by how many times they can be cast per day, kind of like, uh, well, I can't remember. I don't think, did Pathfinder First Edition do that? I don't remember. Anyway, too many games. Um, but what I want to do is make sure that, uh, A, they're not damaging. Like, I don't want to have any... Um, damaging uh, spells. I don't want to have anything that is going to supplant, uh, you know, to make them just basically be artillery pieces that can keep, you know, throwing firebolt over and over again, because I think that breaks the theme of the um, of the OSR, you know, kind of games. And certainly for, for what I, I envision for Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Uh, but I think that um, giving them access to some utility things at low uh, as uh, cantrips that will give those low level characters opportunities to do some more magical stuff in the game um, and may, may make some of the actual de dedicated caster classes a little more attractive uh, than say like the warlock so in astonishing swordsman and sorcerers of hyperborea they have a basically like a um, you know warrior mage class called a warlock which is fucking awesome 
and uh, it, not surprisingly, it's a pretty popular pick, and I actually have two Warlocks of uh, different varieties playing in my uh, uh, Reavers of Tula campaign. And I mean, full a fair dues to them, because I'm pretty sure that's the class I'd pick too. It's pretty badass, gets spells, gets swords, it's, it's awesome. Just uh, slightly less hit points than uh, what a fighter has. Um, or any other kind of the subclasses of fighter, I should say. But, um, but what this, if I restrict cantrips to being available to only dedicated casters, so like any of the magician classes and any of the priest classes that have spells, so not the rune graver and not the monk, that'll give maybe a little extra benefit or extra incentive to give those classes a try. You know, um, some of the, the those classes do actually already have kind of like cantrip or cantrip-like abilities. Like I think the uh, pyromancer can create fire a certain number of times per day. But by giving them a little extra oof, oomph, then it gives them the uh, the opportunity to feel like a magical class, to feel like what their class, what makes their class special more often than just having to wait for that particular opportunity to use the um, limited resources they have for their more powerful spells. Um, now, the concern that uh, I see or that I see expressed in a lot of um, either online uh, comments about cantrips or um, the, um, the problems with with the uh, cantrips stepping on, you know, what other characters can do. Uh, in the, there's a supplement for Revised Stars Without Number that came out fairly recently at the time of recording that uh, called uh, the uh, Codex of the Black Sun. And what it is is a whole book about introducing magic to the Revised Stars Without Number game. And one of the things they expressly talk about is make sure you're not introducing spells that invalidate or make, um, not invalidate, but make the certain other classes unnecessary or it, it and fills up their thematic things you know the, the thematic space that that uh, their class occupies and uh, and that that's completely I'm, I'm live to that so like I mean I wouldn't make any cantrips that like you know uh, make a archer invalid so no damage spells or that make a you know um, a thief so no, no like cantrips that open locks or, or stuff like that but I mean some of the other small things, like what Druid Craft does, or like um, what uh, Prestidigitation does in Fifth uh, Edition D and D, where it's really just like some neat little magical thing, like making your robe shake, or like you know changing the color of a liquid, or something like that. Some little small magical thing uh, that really is there, I think, just more to prompt players for some fun role playing uh, and so to add something to the session. Then uh, I see no reason why not to to add that in. Um, I'm, I got to figure out what uh, you know, like what levels people will gain uh, new cantrips and things like that. But and I want to make sure that they're actually something that's interesting too. Like I, they need to be useful enough for for the players to to make some kind of uh, decision. You know, suffer over what one they want to use. And I think what I might do to to not box out the the semi casters in uh, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, like the Warlocks, the Lajardemanus, the Purloiner, is I might allow them to pick one cantrip. So, like the full casters might start with, say, three or four, and the semi casters will only start with one. So, they've got some small little thing they can do as well. But, uh, but anyway, I mean, I, I need to put uh, pen to paper and get that sucker uh, written out, and maybe I'll do that on Saturday this weekend. and and then maybe I'll actually start making use of my blog again and uh, share some of this stuff. But uh, but anyway, that's what I'm thinking about cantrips. What do you think? Like, have you used cantrips in your own OSR games? Um, have you found problems with that? 
did, did, did you, you know, is it uh, simple enough for me to just go back to the old AD&D ones? Now, I, I've looked at those, and I think they're a little too niche. Like, um, you know, there's specific ones for, like, do laundry and stuff like that. And I think that's a little too specific for what I'm looking for. Um, I'm, I'm not really concerned about uh, balance, you know, in, in terms of... Uh, the, the cantrips, but um, but anyway, let me know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe like making those little decisions does add more. So, uh, have you used those uh, cantrip rules in AD and D, and have you found them to be compelling? Like, did they add something to the game? Were they worth the uh, the effort of you know making those decisions as to which ones to pick and keeping track of them in uh, in game? So, anyway, that's what I'm thinking about today: factions and cantrips. Okay, so that's probably it for this week. That's a little bit about factions, a little bit about cantrips. Um, what do you guys think? Have you made use of uh, factions in your own campaigns? Have you made use of uh, cantrips in any of your campaigns? And if so, how do you uh, how do you feel about them? Um, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this, please don't hesitate to comment on... Uh, well, you can't comment in the comment section. That's what you can do in the YouTube channel. So you can also find me on uh, the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. At the time of recording, we've got a bunch of really uh, fun campaigns that are just kicking off now for actual play, including Delta Green. Um, what do we got? Delta Green, Starfinder, uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, and 4th Edition Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Um... You can shoot me a message on uh, Anchor, uh, or you can shoot me a tweet at Dungeon Musings, uh, or you can shoot me an email at dungeonmusings at gmail.com. So it's not another at, it's dungeonmusings at gmail.com is my email address. Um, Otherwise, I hope this finds everyone well. Have a really great weekend, and uh, happy gaming, everyone.